and welcome to Through the Glass Darkly. My name is Sean Patrick Hazlett. I'll be your host. Today is January 24th, 2022. My first guest will be Martin L. Shoemaker, who is a hard science fiction author with publications in Analog Science Fiction and Fact, Galaxy's Edge, numerous Bane anthologies, and many, many others. He is a Nebula-nominated author, and he's written several novels, including Today I Am Carrie. Join me in welcoming our guest. Please hit the like and subscribe button, and I look forward to many future episodes. See you soon. Welcome, Martin. I appreciate you taking your time uh, out of a very busy schedule to be first down the chute in this crazy project that is Through a Glass Darkly. Um, I've kind of given folks a very brief introduction of what you write, some of the works that you've written, but let's, let's start with uh, from the beginning. You know, where are you from? What's your background? And we'll, you know, we'll kind of work from there. So floor is yours my friend well i i grew up and 20 miles from where i'm sitting right now um little little town called byron center only i wasn't in byron center i was in byron township far out on the edge of the township so i didn't even grow up in the town i grew up not farm country but edge of it um mm -hmm. close enough to farm country um, I always like to draw a distinction between farmers and people who have animals they have to take care of. Because most of my life I've had animals to take care of, but farmers raise things that you can actually feed people with, or at least feed animals with. So, and, and, and when you say raise animals to take care of, are you talking about standard domestic animals like dogs? Or are you talking dogs, about like chickens? Dogs and cats. We had chickens for a while. We had a couple of cattle. Uh, I have friends who are in the dairy and beef cattle business, and so we would get beef from them, but one time mom and dad got it into their heads, they wanted to raise a cow on property and get the beef that way, and that worked once, and then the second time when mom found herself chased up a tree by a young bull, that was when she decided that this was something for the professionals. Mom was a hearty, strong woman who took care of lots of things around the house, but she wasn't wrestling no bull. And what did your parents do when you were growing up? Like what kind of occupations did they have? Or uh, they, they built houses. That wasn't their actual occupation, but they did. Um, Dad was a welder. He was journeyman welder. He was skilled trades of various sorts, but welding was the top. Uh, he was an electrician. Um, and he and mom, up until this house that I'm sitting in now, which I bought from the estate, they built most of the houses we ever lived in. When they oh, got wow. married, they bought a house that had been in dad's family. It didn't count as a centennial farm because it had like five years where it was out of the family. They bought this really old farmhouse and lived in there before they had any kids, lived in there, and immediately started building a house across the driveway from it. 
Okay. So that at the point where they had now starting to grow in family, but it was going to. kids at the north side of the driveway and built another house there. In the intervening time, they built two barns, an old one and then the larger one to replace it. And when they had the big house built, they didn't tear down the second house or the, the house they built across the driveway, but they converted it to a garage, a three-stall garage, which it had always been planned for because mom Built, drew all of her own building plans and they oh, wow. built that thing with stall doors hidden inside the east wall of the building. So when they were ready, they had to gut some interior walls and open up the stall doors that were there and bang, they've got a garage. Oh, well, and, and so your mother was kind of a self-taught architect, it sounds like? She was definitely, uh, she was an artist and she was a self-taught architect and she was an obsessive compulsive when it came to these things, the sort of perfectionist. Um, at one point, because as they got older, there were some things they didn't do themselves. They did pretty much everything they possibly could, but there were some things that they didn't. They had at one point decided to want a new carpeting in the living room. And so they had a carpet crew come in to put it in. And the manager of the crew asked the crew to measure out the living room and I don't remember the number now, but basically it was as wide as it was long, precisely. And the manager said, no, you've got to measure that again. That never happens. And mom just said, it's square. Very nice, very nice. And then, uh, so what What um, led you to pursue kind of what you do for a living? I mean, if you could just tell everybody kind of, I know what you do, but you know, yeah. a lot of people who tune in don't. Uh, by day, I'm a programmer. By night, I'm, of course, a writer, but by day, I'm a programmer. Um, I, I, I was forced to become a programmer because I was no good at anything else. That's not 100% that's not true, but I had no interest in anything else. When I went to college, I'd been programming for about three years in high school, and this was way, way long ago when I was programming on devices with, like, kilobytes of memory and we're talking a hand's worth of kilobytes of memory so what do you what, was, were you what were you programming in like basic or fortran basic, like what okay basic a little fortran but basic but when i was getting ready to go to school uh one of my brother's friends advised me my brother's six years older my other brother is 12 years older but my brother joe is six years older went to school with a guy who was my idol as a kid he was going to college, which just didn't happen in our community that often. It did, but, but you didn't know very many people that did it. And he was going to college and he was going to be a computer programmer. And this was a guy I wanted to be like him because I am not any good with my hands. I can't build my own houses. I can't repair things. I think problems. And I'm mm -hmm. like, this is what I want to do because I'm loving programming so much. And this guy who I had to a degree modeled my life on quit college and went to work in a factory, one of the bigger ones locally, and basically said his major reason was because the statistics bore this out, and I did see the numbers to back them up, that at that time, computer programming had the highest rates of suicide, alcoholism, and divorce of any professional field. And it's like, 
but but I like it. Well, you won't like it, but I like <laughs> it. You won't like it as a job. Okay, well, I've been studying physics in the science fiction magazines that had their physics articles with them. And I'm like, this is fascinating stuff. I want to do this for a living. Unfortunately, my little rural high school, which no fault of theirs, this is this is 1970s, there was not a big academic track there. They didn't prepare me mathematically for college physics. They prepared me pretty well. Now, when could, you said when you said they don't prepare you mathematically, or they didn't prepare you mathematically for college physics, like how far did you get along in high school? And then what were they like? What level the, of mathematics were they? Yeah. The the last six weeks of senior year in my high school, which of course nobody does anything in the last six weeks, the last six weeks of senior year in my high school were pre-calculus. Oh my god. My okay. my best friend in college went to a school in Ann Arbor where all of the professors sent their kids and he had two full years of calculus. He tested out of college calculus, but took it anyway because there was a professor that was a really, really, really good mathematics professor that he wanted to study under. Uh, if you're familiar with an Erdos number. It sounds familiar. Erdos is, is how close you are in terms of collaborative papers with Paul Erdos, one of the top mathematicians of the 20th century. Professor George Peranian had an Erdos number of one. Oh, wow. He was Erdos's advisor at one point. So this is the level of instructor that my friend wanted to learn from. I had six weeks of pre-calc and again, Nobody gets anything done in those last six weeks of senior year. But I have a strange brain, very strange brain. Uh, gee, I'm a science fiction writer. Imagine a science fiction writer with a strange brain. Right. I test like a mad fiend. I always test better than my actual knowledge. Don't ask me how, but I will rise to the test. On all of my placement tests, I ended up in the calculus class with my friend who, who had two years of calculus behind him. I had all of the placement tests to say, this guy is an advanced mathematician. So I ended up way over my head and they had me in physics classes way over my head. And I just wasn't ready for physics. I, I, I love physics. I still, I get halfway through ENM and I just start to get lost. Electricity does not make sense to me. Mechanics, I was great. Get into ENM and I start to lose it. Well, that's because there's, there's more there's more math there, right? It's more math and it gets into more convoluted stuff that I did okay with derivatives. When I hit integrals, I started to reach my peak. This concept of this thing is solvable, but not by a method. It is solvable by intuition. And you can use, you can take your intuition and come up with an idea of what the solution might be and prove that it is. But no one can give you a method to solve this integral. And that is, from what I can tell, there are three classes of integrals. Ones that have a method, ones that have intuition, and ones that can't be solved. 
I was okay with the ones which have a method, which are the simple baby steps integrals. You get into the other ones, I was lost. And so I'm sitting here trying to major in the thing that fascinates me in terms of the reading about it, but I can't do it. And in the meantime, I'm already working as a professional programmer as my work study job in the college. And at one point I just said, why am I fighting this? Mm -hmm. And I changed majors and immediately discovered that I was already in my work doing stuff more advanced than the first three semesters of programming classes. And that there was out of that, there was one class that actually taught me something useful, the data structures class, which is essentially the foundation of most modern computing languages and with stuff you won't discover on your own. Like pointers and, and stuff like that. Just, just the basic concept Arrays. of structured data. Arrays are simple, but structured data that you can have pieces that are tied together and manipulated as a group isn't a concept you're going to come up with on your own. Up until then, I was working with strings and integers and floats and arrays of such. But the idea of you can take a string and an integer and two floats and call them an account balance with a, a credit limit and a current value and an account number and a name and put those as an object to manipulate together. I mean, today, having done this all my life practically, it's obvious. But then it was a revelation. So when you were taking programming courses, did C, was C invented yet or is that kind of? Invented? I think so. Taught, not when I started. When I started, it was Pascal was the big thing. Mm, yep. And, and so I'm learning this stuff. And I eventually made a realization. And I think this is as true today as it was then. My friend who said it has the highest rates of alcoholism, suicide, and divorce was right. Because there are two kinds of people who go into programming. We're about to be visited by a cat. No, he went the other way. There are two <laughs> kinds of people who go into programming. People who see that it's a high paid job that they want to get into. And people who say, oh my God, you're gonna pay me to solve mental puzzles all day? You're going to pay me to play? The first kind finds that it's horrendously, horrendously frustrating, just absolutely. And the second kind is like, but that's the point. It's the challenge. I'm going to be bigger than this problem. There is no way that this bug from hell is going to stop me. I am going to beat it. And so there's a job satisfaction there that's entirely separate from the money. Uh, Fred Brooks, an early pioneer in the sort of theory of programming, the more academic managerial theory, um, he said that, and, and I'll let the doctors and other people argue about this if they want, but in Brooks's essays, he said that programming at the large scale is the single most complex intellectual endeavor of humanity. The reason being that other intellectual endeavors, big and complex as they are, whether it's rocket science or brain surgery, they all to some degree are constrained by the physical dimensions of reality. Mm -hmm. That this neuron is next to this neuron, which is next to this neuron, which is attached to this optic nerve, which is attached to 
this brain or th this eye, this retina. And you also have three spatial dimensions in one dimension at a time. Yeah. Whereas in, in programming, the connectivity is potentially infinite. Any piece can connect to any other piece. And so the range of possible, hello, Jerry, the range of possible connections that you might have to chase down and understand is unlimited. Now, we can agree with Brooks or we can't, but I think we can agree that it's pretty complicated. He never climbs on my shoulders. <laughs> um, but then he said, and therefore it takes a special weird brain. First, you have to like that sort of challenge. Second, you have to have enough ego to believe that you can do the impossible. And third, you have to not have enough humility to realize that you can't. If you don't have the ego to believe you can do it, you will eventually end up an alcoholic divorce suicide because the challenges are too big compared to what you want to put in for effort. You have to have the humility because eventually you have to realize that no, you're not that smart. You need other people checking you. You need to assume. Step one, always assume it's your bug. Mm -hmm. Don't assume it's a cosmic ray. Don't assume it's somebody else's screw up. Don't assume that, that, that you had a, a mechanical or electro optical glitch or electronic or whatever. Assume it's your bug. I have in fact lost three weeks to an electronic glitch where we were processing video and getting strange bugs, which were bugs in my code. It was my mistake, but they never happened in the lab. They only ever happened at one particular client site where in the room next door, they were running an arc welder. And every time the arc welder turned on, five or six random pixels of solid black would show up in the image. And my code could handle nearly black, but it had a bug for solid black. So sometimes it really is random noise in the universe. But you shouldn't assume that. The sooner you learn to assume that you screwed up, the faster you'll get the easy problem solved. Because if you screwed it up, you can find it, you can fix it. What you're left with after that, that's when the challenge comes in. Now, what kind of software problems do you commonly solve today? Or what, what sorts of parts of industry do you work, work use, you know, use software to solve problems? Today, I have since roughly 10, 11 years back, I'm, I lose track of these things. It's either 10 or 11 years that I've been working for a company that makes vehicle transmissions, vehicle transmissions, vehicle, practically anything these days, of course, is computerized. Transmissions are heavily transmission, computerized in the, uh, the big truck transmissions. And that's great that there's computers on there, but, but people don't talk bits and bytes and switches. People talk words and pictures which means you need software to talk to the software to translate signals coming from that transmission into numbers, reports, and instructions on a screen. Mm -hmm. I'm working on the team that is building the diagnostic tool that plug into the software running on the transmission. And so the basic problems I am dealing with are, okay, I'll say this, and I'm, I'm joking cynically, but the basic problems I'm running into are people don't know what they want. Okay, that's not the real technical problem, but that is the real no, technical no, no, problem. No, that's, that's a real-world technical problem, and it's not just in software programming. 
Yeah, it, it drives it, it, it drives me nuts, especially like especially when I lead like when I lead an organization, I'm very clear about what I want because nothing causes more just wasted time, effort, and energy when you are not clear about what you want. And the problem mm-hmm. is, they don't like a lot of times people don't know what they want, and they're just like, well, just figure it out, just figure it out. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mm-hmm. keep going, keep going. I. That is a common problem. It's very, it's very that actually that actually leads to us in the software development world with a not even a methodology. They don't say it's a methodology. It's really a, a philosophy called agile development. Mm-hmm. And and if I were to sum it up very simply, it's anybody who tells you what they want two years from now is wrong. Anybody who tells you what they want two weeks from now is probably pretty close. So when you have like scrums and stuff like that, or what what do they call it? That's that's, no, that's, that's the wrong. That's the wrong. I'm sorry for all you agile people out there, but if that's what you're calling agile, you're wrong. That is a way of implementing agile, but agile is about deliver a small chunk of functionality and learn from them. And there's actually, if you, if you look up the agile manifesto, this was the original conference group that came up with the term agile development and they have four principles and and i don't have them off the top of my head right now but one of them is basically working software over documentation because you learn more when you try run the working software so working software over comprehensive documentation because if you have working software somebody can say no that's not what i want if you have lots of words and pictures on a page, they're not sure it's not what they want. Uh, there's communications over contracts and stuff. There's, but one of the biggest one is, and I'm, I'm butchering these, look up the website, but, but one of them is that processes are not agile. The right processes are agile, but saying this tool is agile, tends to get you back into the concept of the process is the golden thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no. So yes, agile teams often use Scrum. That doesn't mean that unagile teams don't often use Scrum. Many, many, many unagile teams think they're doing agile because they're using Scrum. Now, is Scrum a good thing? Sure, when it works. For the audience, what is, what is Scrum? Scrum is essentially, uh, generally speaking, it's a morning meeting. It can be an afternoon meeting, especially in the modern interconnected world. It could be any kind, but it's essentially a meeting where everybody says, hey, what did you do yesterday? What are you working on today? Are you blocked? Can somebody help you? That's the theory. It should be a stand-up meeting because you want it to be fast. If you've got a team of five people, I should be able to say, that yesterday I worked on the report for the the fault codes. And today I'm gonna be testing that report with real hardware, but my real hardware isn't working. So I need somebody to help me figure out why that's not working. I gave my whole report in 30 seconds. Yep. And you give your 30s and it's just, it's it's sort of a, a like, an odometer. It's marking over that we've made this much progress. We've made this much progress. What it turns into is status meetings. And your your 10-minute scrum turns into 
90 to 120 minutes of status reporting, which should have been all in email or all logged in your tracking system. So nobody should have to report it in a meeting. The purpose of this meeting is essentially sync us up for the day. And who needs help? Do they use slides for those status meetings? Oh God. That, that's what, yeah, that's what, that's when you know it's, it's not, yeah. it's not, it's not really scrum. Right. So, but I, I got off on this agile sidetrack. Um, but that, that is one advantage of agile is you're supposed to be working on smaller chunks and figuring out over time, as opposed to trying to figure it all out at once. And so that is a technique. We're actually, I mean, I will say it's, like, it's like writing a story, right? It, it, okay, getting into the story side of things, I believe that I do what is known as agile writing. Okay. Because let's, very often I have no idea what I'm writing until I sit down to write it. Let's, um, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about, uh, I, I was going to start with your, you know, what you write and why you write, but let's start with the writing piece first because of that segue about agile writing. Um, you know, what's your writing process and how does it feed into this agile writing and, and what for, for some of the writers who would, you know, listen to this podcast and, and want to learn about your, your process, what kind of advice would you give them knowing that what works for you might not work for everybody else? I am huge, huge, huge about tools, not rules. Anybody gives you the one true path to writing is lying or naive or trying to sell you something, which is why they're lying. Yep. Um, it may be that they found a path which has worked for them once or twice. And so therefore, everybody has to do this. Um, let me just take a digression and you can edit it out when you're all done if you want. But I, this is this is a, a, a concept I like to explain with a metaphor. And we're not even on my process here. We're talking about processes. It's a metaphor that I first heard from Alistair Coburn in his book on agile software development. Um, and he took it from somebody else, which I don't know who else it was, but they were talking about levels of learning Mm -hmm. or level, levels of listening. I have adapted it to levels of learning and he had three levels and I have four because he missed the crucial one. Level zero, he missed. He talked about one, two, and three and way too many people are stuck in zero. And I'm going to, because it helps you remember it easier, I'm going to turn it into a travel metaphor, which is going to sound suspiciously familiar to anybody who's read The Hobbit, which is, I think, a fair number of your audience. Level well, zero. Well, to be clear, I don't have an audience yet, Martin. <laughs> yes, you do. We just haven't met them yet. Yeah, I'm trying to build it, but you know, let's just to be clear. But go ahead. The level, level zero is wandering. You are lost in these deep, dark woods and you want to get out. And if you see a mushroom, you're going to eat it because you're hungry and you hope it's not poison. If you see a stream, you're going to drink from it and hope that it's not enchanted and knocks you asleep because you're thirsty. If you see a light in the distance, you're going to go there because you're tired of being lost in these dark woods. When you're at level zero, wandering, anything's got to be better. Level one is following. A friendly wizard puts you on a path and says, 
follow this path. If you stay on this path and you only eat the following mushrooms and you don't drink from any of these streams and you follow this path, you will get to the other side of these woods. And to somebody who's been wandering, that sounds incredibly comfortable. It's like, finally, I have a way to get to a spot on the other side of the woods. But first, following it can be long and hard and people sometimes fall off the path. That never happened to a bunch of dwarves, did it? Never <laughs> once got fallen off the path. And then you're back to wandering. But second, it takes you to one place. And if that's not the one place you really need to go, well, you're out of the woods, but, but, but you've got your one true path. And way too many people advising or teaching on writing are at the level one place. They have their one true path. And some of them will get quite, quite vehemently upset if you tell them that's not the only way. Because it is, and they're following it. And you are challenging their safety net. Level two is navigating. You know there are many paths through these woods. You have a map. And you say, I want to end up over here, so I'm going to take this path until I hit here and branch off to this path, and so on. So you do not have many ways through the woods. Level three is trailblazing. You're the one who makes maps. You're the pathfinder. You're the pathfinder. You know that at your level of experience, all problems have one process. Where am I? Where do I want to go? What are my resources? What are my constraints? Figure out a path that solves those constraints with those resources to get to that goal with enough reserves so that when something comes up I haven't planned for, I have something to handle it with. Level three is you've been wandering in the woods for 30 years and you've figured things out. The complication comes in when people at one level listen to a discussion at another. So somebody at level zero, here, this is an outline. This will get you someplace. And level two comes along and says, no, not everybody outlines, you know. And, and maybe that's the wrong way to outline. And lots of good books have been written without an outline. The level one person attacks because, because no, you must have an outline. Otherwise you're wandering. And then meanwhile, here comes a couple of level three people having a discussion where it doesn't sound like they've got any plan at all because their plan is situational awareness, situational assessment, and a deep memory of things they've learned that worked and didn't work in the past. And so if you're a level one, you hear level threes talking, maybe even if you're a level two and you hear level threes talking, telling people to wander. And everybody knows that wandering is bad. It's like, well, I'm not telling them to wander. I'm telling them to learn to get to the point where they can wander. And, and these and are just... Not to put you on the spot, but where are you on that? <laughs> I am, I would say I am between a two and a three. Okay. On a good day, I think I'm a three. 
because I'm constantly inventing new methods and trying them out and seeing how they work. So I feel like I don't know if I've got the experience to call myself a three, but, but maybe I do. Uh, Dean Wesley Smith, who was one of my earliest writing instructors, would talk about a writing career and how in this business, essentially, if you've lasted 10 years in the business with producing and selling product for that long, you're no longer a newbie. That he said it, that, that most people never make it to the 10 year mark. And so if you've made the 10 year mark and you're still writing and you're still producing and you're still selling, you've accomplished something. That doesn't mean you won't have disasters coming. Mm-hmm. But, but you have crossed the threshold. It's like, well, uh, let's see. My first story sale to a pro-paying market was in 2011. So I, I've hit 11 years. I still don't know that I feel like, like I'm at a three because I'm comparing myself to Dean, his wife, Chris, and Kevin J. Anderson's wife, Rebecca. And, and you know all these people I'm talking about. And I'm comparing myself to them and saying, I don't feel like I'm there, but I advise other writers this, and and sometimes I need to remember it myself as well. Um, You need to sometimes stop and think about five years ago, Sean. Mm -hmm. When you're assessing your career, ask yourself what five years ago, Sean, would think about where you're at today. Would he feel like you'd accomplish something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now the answer is no. That's the whole separate discussion we need to have of, of are are you losing it or are you not making the time or whatever. But for many, many, many writers who are feeling like they they're lost, they're not getting anywhere. If they go back and look where they were five years ago, oh wow, I guess I have learned something. I guess I have accomplished something. And I'm looking back at five years ago, me and not having three published novels out there, one of them being the best selling ebook for science fiction ebook on Amazon for the solid month of October 2019. And it's like, okay, that guy five years ago, yeah, he had that book written, but he had no idea where it was going. Yep. That guy five years ago had no idea of all the things I'm involved in now. So I, if somebody told me I'm a three, I'm not going to argue with them. If somebody told me, no, you're just a two, I'm going to say, yeah, but I'm a two who's trying really hard. But I'm not going to argue with them either. And to some degree, I don't think you can necessarily objectively assess this. But I mean, I am writing, very close, very close. I am writing a book on story modeling which was written nearly two years ago now and i'm 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 dragging because there's a lot of editing work that has to go into it and everything but i gave this i'm sorry i i gave a version of this book content in two two sessions to david wolverton's uh apex writing group um literally the last two sessions of his strategy group meeting before he passed away, he asked me to present this material. And and he told me I did a great job and this was really valuable stuff for people to read. So 
So that is, I mean, that's kind of level three work at that point that I am showing people new techniques that I, I will say that some of what's in there, I don't think anybody in this industry is doing yet but me. Because they're techniques I took from my software world that I'd already been thinking in, the, in these methods for 20 years in software that I started realizing that, hey, maybe I could, and then people laugh and say software isn't, isn't stories. It's like, well, okay, here's my day-to-day -day world in software. I have people who say they want things, but they really want something else. And I have to figure out what they really want and make it happen and think of what could go wrong and what we'll do about that. Mm -hmm. And in fiction, I have characters who have obvious visible needs or claims of needs, which really hide deeper surface requirements and goals that they have. They're deeper challenges. And I have to write the story of what happens when they pursue these and what goes wrong and how they deal with it. And all of a sudden it's like, how different is software from fiction at some level? It's a problem-solving discipline, right? It's a problem-solving discipline. One big difference is in fiction, once I have settled on a path for how things are going to happen, I really only have to worry about that path. In software, today you wanted to clean the car. Tomorrow you wanted to clean the boat. I have to write the code for both. I have to look at every possible path in the software side. On the fiction side, I want to think about every possible path to find where the cool story is. But when I pick a path, I can set those others off to the side unless I find that, hey, they'll be useful later. Mm -hmm. So to that degree, software is more challenging because I have to successfully implement every path or cut off paths to say, we're not going to let you try this because we don't know how to make it work yet. In fiction, I need to find a path. So I am bringing to this Making Story Models book, which is also a workshop that I will be teaching through FireCon when they get it, it was postponed for David's death. Um, when we get it set up again, I will be teaching this and I will have the book coming out. This is, a lot of it is based on my 20 years of software modeling, taking those techniques to story modeling and then applying lessons that I learned from David, lessons that I've learned from all sorts of pros in the business, lessons that I've learned from Vonnegut, big lessons from Vonnegut are a basis for maybe 30% of the book. Mm -hmm. and, and integrating these into a new way of modeling stories, which going back to your original question of what my writing process is, very often I'm not modeling at all. Going back to my tools, not rules, my ultimate rule is do what works for this story right now and if it's not working do something else um kipling from the, in the neolithic age there are nine and sixty ways of constructing tribal lays and every single one of them is right you're doing the one that works so my process in general 
is I have a session either on a treadmill or while driving or even just sitting in a chair, but I'd rather be getting something done besides where I dictate. And I dictate, roughly speaking, that'd be uh, uh, 3,000 words an hour, mm -hmm. 50 words a minute. And what is generally the case is I don't know what I'm going to dictate. And I almost literally don't know what I'm dictating as I dictate it. I think there's some flow state going on there. Now, the question is, what am I dictating? It may be that I had a short story idea that morning and I want to dictate that. It may be that I'm in the middle of a novel, and so I want to start where I left off and see what happens next. Um, what I'm actually writing right now is the first of eight prequels to a novel that I wrote last year that my agent and I have looked at this and said, yeah, but the prequels have got a lot more action and, and, and magic and everything, so maybe start with those. But the original was almost entirely pantsed. For those of you who aren't writers or haven't run into this terminology, pantsing also called discovery writing, writing from the seat of your pants. I had this basic premise for a setup for a story. I said, okay, let's, let's tell that premise. And I think it's big. I think I'm telling a novel. I have to now build in all of the backstory to make that premise make sense, to make the rules of my universe support that. And in the process of literally telling this sat down, I don't know where it's going next. I've got a flash here, a flash there, kind of goals coming, but I don't know the story, but I'm filling in pieces of the world to support this story as I go along. And in the process, I essentially wrote an outline for eight more books. <laughs> but great. but I, I hadn't intended them to be an outline. I just intended that what happens in this book has to make sense. So that book was entirely pantsed. Now my agent and I want to take this series of eight books and pitch them to a publisher. Hi, Bain, if you're out there, I, I'm hoping we pitch to you. But we're, we're going to pitch them to publishers. But that means if I'm trying to pitch a series now, I need an overall series arc. Nobody's going to buy, hey, Martin's going to write eight books leading up to this ninth book. Would you buy that? No, 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 no. They need to see what's happening in the 20s, what's happening in the 30s, what happens happening in the 40s, and see that there is some arc going on here and some change in the characters leading to some big thing, which ends with the book I've already written. And so for these books, I am doing more of a model, more of an outline ahead of time, enough for what I need. Um, I wrote for the first book, I wrote, now I can't remember, three, maybe four paragraphs of summary. Mm -hmm. and, and I knew from the ninth book, the first one written, I knew from the ninth book sort of what happened in that book. And I knew it's going to involve two characters who are in the ninth book. And it's going to involve when they met in the middle of each of them separately hunting down a supernatural menace. And when they eventually had their wedding day, when the real supernatural menace is going to destroy the world, it's like, how do we, almost literally, how do we stop this and get to the church on time? <laughs> I was like, okay, so I knew that was there. So I wrote three or four paragraphs to fill that in. 
And now I start dictating for that. And the dictation, it's, it, it's I, I never know. Uh, there is a, if you're familiar with Ray Bradbury Theater, the opening of that has Ray going into his office through his special private elevator and everything and sits down his typewriter to start telling a story. And he looks around at all the junk in his office filled with toys and, and treasures and, and souvenirs and whatnot. And he looks around and says, out of all of this, what am I going to make a story today? I don't have no idea. And, and he uses the line, exactly one half exhilaration, exactly one half terror. <laughs> and that's sort of my dictation process is I might have an idea of my starting point. I might have some things out there I want to get to, but in the meantime, I'm in the moment. Um, and, and I've been distracted from this by teaching classes, by work, by the holidays, by Dave's death, by conventions. And, and just really, I need to get writing on this book. Yesterday, I was driving back from a convention on the east side of the state over Novi area. Uh, my cord is just strained and all of a sudden I'm not charging anymore. Come on, come on, give me charging. There we go. Over on the Novi area. So it was about a two and a half hour drive back. It ended up being more like three and a half because the first hour was in the middle of winter storm advisories and slide offs and everything else. But it was like, I am going to dictate. I have told myself I'm going to dictate on this trip home. I am going to dictate and I don't care about the weather, which is an <laughs> insane attitude to take, but I never claim to be sane. I dictated 6,100 words on the way back from the convention yesterday. And the best, the most productive period of that, because I broke it in segments, at 50 words per minute was the first hour when I was deep in the snowstorm. And I just, my, my mouth was going here, my brain was going here. Meanwhile, another part of my brain and my hands were and my eyes were all on driving. And there's a point in there, and I, I'm, actually posted about this on Facebook tonight. There is a point in there where the point of view character, first person protagonist, described the other lead characters in Salsians. <laughs> and it's like, okay, I have a decent vocabulary. It's not like I've never read that word before. I am almost 58 years old and I'm sure I have never written nor spoken that word before. And I still haven't, but she has. When it came time for me in her voice to describe this character's behavior, insouciance was the word, absolutely the perfect word. I was like, where did that come from? I don't you're know. Ch you're channeling, Martin, you're channeling. Okay, here's my theory. And I have talked to some neuroscientists, so I think that it's probably got some truth to it, even though I don't have any data or anything to really back it up. But my theory is that human beings have this thing called empathy. I know it's an amazing concept that humans have empathy. I have empathy for the cat who just fell. <laughs> that, that part of empathy involves pathways in our brains that can relate to what other people are experiencing. And in fact, this is a something they mentioned called mirror neurons. 
that you can have the classic example is a monkey experiment where they've got them hooked up for some sort of functional MRI scan. And watch what happens when the monkey grabs the ball and there's a whole bunch of neurons that fire and they map what those are. And then they map what happens when the monkey watches you grab the ball. And some of them stay dark, but some of them light up just as exactly as if the monkey had grabbed the ball. That there are parts of the brain, especially the primate brain, that recognize similarity between you and the other. And that's well-founded neuroscience. My out there theory is that this leads into empathy, the ability to essentially see myself as you for a while. Mm -hmm. And I think that authors have a little more of that, a little more empathic distancing, that for a while we are becoming the character. Now, this sounds like something pathological. If it becomes too much that, you're, you're into multiple personality stuff. And, yeah. and yeah, that is exactly what's the possibility that there are sort of stable nodes within your pathways. And if you veer too far, you might land up in a different stable node. So, so my theory is that as authors, especially the more we do it with practice, we do to some degree become our characters when we're thinking through a story on their behalf. Um, there may be a, an author who has never had a character do something that wasn't what the author wanted, but it's really what I hear from most of us is at some point the character just said, I wouldn't do that. <laughs> That's not me because you have built in your head this little empathic model of that character and you're starting to understand that character's personality and choices and goals. And you're trying to make it do one that's not on the path. So when, once you kind of do this uh, dictation, what, you have 6,000 words of just like, you know, two hours of just, I don't want to say verbal diarrhea, but I'm sure it's amazing stuff. But how do you get that into into Word or whatever um, word processing software that you use? Do you um, use some sort of dictation software? Do you have somebody uh, transcribe it for you? Like, how do you handle that? There, there are two answers. One is the preferred method, which is Dragon Naturally Speaking Professional 15. You can skip the 15. You could go with an earlier version. You cannot... For me, you cannot skip the professional. You cannot use the much cheaper home because home, and, and I'm a loyal Dragon fan, loyal, loyal, nuanced customer. I love their tools and I hate this because I'm a Windows programmer. I know how all this stuff works under the hood. Yeah. Home will only transcribe from the microphone as you're speaking. Professional will transcribe from a recorded audio file. And I know under the hood, in terms of implementation, there's no difference. The recorded audio file is an input stream. The microphone is an input stream. If anything, the microphone is the harder one because you could be potentially de dealing with more 
interference and possible speed ups and slowdowns in the processing and everything. Whereas the recorded audio is done, but they charge, I don't want to say twice as much, but, but a significant premium for professional. And it's under the hood, it's the same code. I'm sorry, they would have to convince me otherwise, they would have to show me their code for me to believe otherwise, because I've written audio processing software and it's the same. What do they do? Just remove a filter, certain some, some filters on the uh, the home version? My guess is something like that, that the home version, okay, there is essentially a what we call a stream. A stream is a bunch of bytes coming in from, from a source. There is a method inside of Windows to say, open up that file as a stream. There is a method to say, open up that microphone as a stream. Both of them hand you a stream object that you then start sucking data through. They, they literally, on the home version, don't include the button that says, hey, show me the files and let me choose one of those. But, but for all that, it is a tool I absolutely have to recommend in terms of the price versus the functionality. Because before I went to Dragon, okay, another complaint. This isn't supposed to be a complaint about Nuance video because I really do love their tool, but their marketing team should really offer a free trial version. And they don't. By the way, I used to cover Nuance Communications when I was a software analyst. They, they, they do not offer a free trial version. They do offer a rebate or a, a, a warranty. But if you're unsatisfied, you can get their money back. But everybody knows that's a trap, that, that less than half the people who want their money back go through the steps to actually get it. I also can kind of understand their reasoning especially in the earlier versions, the tool's gotten so much better through the years. In the earlier versions, it took a while for you and the tool to learn how each other worked. So the free trial could potentially give a misleading idea of how well it was working. But I'm still, I think I, I would have bought it sooner with a free trial. I know lots of people who would have bought it sooner with a free trial. But here's why to me, it's absolutely worth it despite their screwy marketing and despite their screwy coding. Before Dragon, I was paying a service to do the transcription. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to services, you want to be careful which service you get. First, willing is not a skill. Friends will tell you, I'll do that for you. And then you hand them 60 hours of audio and say, uh, can I have this next week? And, and, and I don't care how much your friends love you. They're not going to do that because it takes more than 60 hours to transcribe 60 hours of audio because you have to sometimes jump back to hear what you missed. And mm -hmm. your, your friends who love you and think they're going to help you mean well, they're not going to do it. There are also services out there which are shady, shady, shady places which take your file and feed it to Dragon. If you're going to feed it to Dragon, why don't you feed it to Dragon? And they're going to charge you for every single time they do this. Whereas if you own Dragon, you only pay up front. But the good ones are charging you for fair work done. iDictate.com. I will absolutely recommend them. And I still use them in special cases. iDictate.com is a really great service. 
and charges a penny and a quarter per word transcribed. This is important. There are other services which are good services that charge per minute transcribed, which means when I'm driving down the road and sometimes hit a blank spell and I'm driving so I can't look at my recorder to shut it off mm -hmm. and I've got five to 10 minutes of nothing. You're gonna pay for them. I'm gonna pay for them. I dictate charges me for the actual words delivered. And a penny and a quarter doesn't sound too bad. Uh, Kevin J. Anderson, my mentor on dictation, he uses another service. I forget which one it is. They now charge by the minute, but because Kevin's been using them for 30 years, he still gets per word rate. And he gets all sorts of favorable treatment because he's been a loyal customer for so long. But they are doing stuff for him that I'm not going to get from iDictate, but they're doing okay. iDictate is getting me this penny and a quarter word. If I were Kevin, I would look and say, so I'm going to spend a penny and a quarter and I'm going to publish this at CIFWA Pro rates at eight cents. So I invested a penny and a quarter to make eight. That's not bad. I'm not Kevin. I don't publish everything I dictate. Right. Um, my stats on Duotrope tell me that I'm doing pretty well compared to the industry as a whole, that I sell about 20% of everything I submit. So that means out of five words that I dictate and transcribe at a penny and a quarter, I sell one. Five times a penny and a quarter is six and a quarter. Selling one for eight means all of a sudden my margin per word is that a penny and three quarters. Wait, so you're saying you've sold 20% of everything you've ever written or? Um, of my or submissions on Duotrope, and I haven't checked the numbers lately because they only pull it up annually, but there was a while there when I was doing short stories on, on a very regular basis mm -hmm. and tracking them on Duotrope. Because when I submit to you, for example, I'm not tracking that on Duotrope because we've got a direct relationship. Yeah, that counts. I, I could still reject you. I could still reject you. We do, but you're not going to have a listing on Duotrope. That's not how I found you. Oh, well, I, so I, when there's not a listing, I put one on there. Yeah. You know, you can do that, right? I, I know I can, but I'm too lazy. I'm, I'm interacting with you directly. But, but when I had Duotrope tracking my stuff, mm -hmm. I was about 20% of what I submitted was getting sold. Now, some of it, it might've been something that I submitted four times before I sold it. But eventually 20% of my submissions turned into sales, which I'm not gonna complain about that by any means. But, but, you're, still, you're, not, but you're not submitting anything that's, not, that's lower than pro rate though, right? Right. Yeah, that's so that's an extremely impressive because I keep going. I keep yeah. going until somebody pays me something for it. Yeah. So so looking at those numbers, all of a sudden it takes me six and a quarter cents to make eight. So there it's looking financially iffy. On top of that, I dictated my first published novel, actually second written. My first published novel, Today I Am Carrie, was 100% dictated. And I had discovered that transcription by me by hand was a losing process mm -hmm. because it takes me about three hours to transcribe an hour of text. So instead of it saving me time, it was costing me time. So I said, okay, I'm going to bite the big one and I am going to pay to get this transcribed by idictate.com who did a phenomenal job of it. 
And let's see, a penny and a quarter per word and 100,000 words. And we're looking in the $1,100 range. And all of a sudden, Dragon's pricing started looking a lot less extreme. And this is still my deciding factor. I hadn't worked with Dragon yet, so I didn't know how it worked. But all of a sudden to say $300 and, and never pay $300 for Dragon. It goes on sale often. You usually will find it if you wait just a little while and find it for 200. You might sometimes find it for 150. But 300 is the list price. It's like 300, 1100. Ah, that's a pretty easy choice. Now, as I've gotten more productive with the dictation, I keep sort of leveling up. Um, there was a point where I was dictating while driving and was averaging 25 to 30 words per minute and was pretty happy with myself. And then the pandemic hit. I'm jumping ahead of topic on you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's still so some we had to go back to too, because yeah. you know, there's a, but go ahead. So I no longer had an hour commute each way every day to dictate it, which was my secret weapon is I have to drive to work. I've got two hours of dictation every single day, five days a week. And of course, now that the pandemic hit and I'm working remotely, I don't have two hours, which is great to have two hours more in my day, but I lost two hours of writing time. Eventually I said, I need a solution for this and I need to get back into my treadmill routine because I kind of lost my routine when my mom died and I lost a lot of motivation. Mm. And so I said, well, let's test the quality of my microphone on the treadmill because treadmills are noisy. Perfect, as accurate as it ever is driving down the road. So I said, okay, well, then I will dictate on my treadmill. And so I dictated on my treadmill and I was getting regularly 50 to 54 words per minute. My thinking is, well, of course, because if I'm on the treadmill, I don't have to worry about Bambi running out in front of me. I have now hit in my driving career seven deer and I don't hold the family record. Michigan's bad for car deer collisions. So I don't have to worry about Bambi jumping out in front of me. I don't have to worry about the other drivers. I don't have to worry about stop signs and stopping for gas and everything. All I have to do is walk and talk. And the amazing thing I discovered is when I am talking, telling a story, I don't notice the effort on the treadmill. So yep. I can go 15% grade for 90 minutes. And at the end of it, if I'm stuck, still, still going in the stories, idea won't let go. I keep going. And I'm doing this at 50 words per minute, where I was 30 on the, on the driving. So I've got 50 words per minute. So I'm thinking this was a great improvement. When I drove back from that convention yesterday, I was at 50 words per minute, 45 to 50. So apparently I've trained my brain yet again to a new level of productivity. So that means that yesterday, 6,100 words at a penny and a quarter a minute Yesterday, that means I did give or take $76 worth of manual transcription. How many days does like that does it take to make up a $300 copy of Dragon? Like four days. Yeah. It takes four days. Yeah. And when I was doing the five days a week, two hours a day of transcription, I was paying for Dragon roughly every two weeks because that was when I was still the slower driver. 
or slower trans dictator. But now I am paying for Dragon. I, I can pay for Dragon in a week easily because it's saving me that much time. I still go with I dictate in cases where I have an older transcription or an older recording that I never got transcribed because it was in, because Dragon, Dragon does not require, Dragon encourages you to speak your punctuation, comma, every single little bit of it, comma, so that Dragon knows where to put them, period. It will try to interpolate where they belong, comma, but I do not often agree with where it puts them, period. So mm -hmm. I insist on speaking my own, period. And this drives listeners like you insane, exclamation point. <laughs> my older recordings don't have that. And my older recordings were not recorded with my expensive cardioid microphone, which cardioid essentially means getting past all the technical side. It amplifies sound coming from here and suppresses sound coming from other directions. I have a video that I put up on Facebook a month and a half ago, I think, where I recorded the same speech with my cardioid and with the microphone in my computer while the TV was blaring in the same room. And I combined them into one video, which is this one is hearing me talking while the TV is playing in the background. And I, I should have turned it up even higher because the TV was there, but it wasn't as loud as I really wanted to make the point. And then hit the midpoint, start over again with the cardioid, and it's quiet. Hmm. It's just nice and quiet. So I've got these recordings that were before Dragon, before me speaking punctuation, before the cardioid microphone. And I've got, I want to say 40 to 50 hours of these, either, either novellas or possibly novels, since I'm not sure what rate I was dictating at. Mm -hmm. Slowly, I am having, I'm paying iDictate to transcribe those because humans do better with noisy recordings than Dragon ever will. Yeah, fair enough. What, what other what other things in the pandemic, you know, for better or for worse, um, and it's not just your writing, like influenced your life, things like that. I've become a hermit. I want you all to come visit me because I don't want to go visit anybody. And I'm, and and why is that? Is that that's not based on fear or anything? It's just you just got used to it, right? I've gotten used to it. I mean. Path of least resistance. I always preferred telecommuting when the company would let me, which they did when I was having health issues and so on. But I never objected to the idea of drive into the office. But if they're going to let me stay home, I will. Now it's, well, you must stay home. Gosh, break my heart. Um, and it's just, it's, it's become inertia. I'm in my mm -hmm. spot. I have my cats, which this is the first time in my life that I have ever been the sole caretaker for cats. And so it's a new experience for me and I'm enjoying it and I miss them. I just went away for two nights to a convention and I missed my boys so much. And I got home and I petted them for an hour. It was so good to have my cats back. Um, and I won't say that's a pandemic effect, but it occurred during the pandemic that I got these cats 
and raised them from nine weeks. And now they own me and own the house and everything. <laughs> so would it have been different if I were in and out of the house more? Maybe, but I still would have the worry of who's going to take care of these. Fortunately, I have family that lives close that can feed them and so on. But it's consideration. I just feel like I'm more of a hermit than I used to be. And it's, it's a, a weird tension because I want to see you so bad. I want to get, get together at Writers of the Future or wherever and just get a chance to sit and talk for hours. But I don't want to leave my house. So I want you to come to mine, which of course you don't want to leave your house. Um, <laughs> this convention I went to was stressful for that. Not because I was anxious, but just because I was going back out into the world and I was, I, I built a nice comfort, comfort zone here. Uh, when I went to Writers of the Future back in October, it was so wonderful to see everybody. And it was anxiety because I was out of my hermit cave. Yeah. It's, it's exhausting, right? Cause you, yeah, I, and I think, I, I think there's definitely, I don't know how extroverts are handling it. Right. But I think, um, I, I had a, at one point, one job I had, it was five, a five hour round trip commute a day. And it just, it's just soul sucking. You come in and you're, you're less productive too. Um, and I think in my last role, I think I came in a total of, you know, two or three times. And the three days that I came in, I would have to work until the next two days until 2 a.m. in the morning just to catch up. So you also had a productivity improvement of like 10 X. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cause you're not, you're not sitting in the road for, you know, an hour to get into work and then you're stressed out and pissed off and you kind of waste time there. And then you start getting into the zone on some work and then, you know, I'm just making up names. Bob comes in and wants to, you know, wants to talk and, you know, it's just, it's not as efficient. And there's some jobs that require more FaceTime and things like that, but it's going to be really interesting to see how companies adapt to this. My company took until roughly, I would say, August to really get over the curve. Right around August of that first year, we started seeing that we were more productive on the whole than we had been in the office. There was a learning curve there, but... But the whole fact that, and, and you'll hear people scream about this, and I know what they're screaming about because they're worrying about protecting our, our lifestyle, blah, 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 blah. But there is a power to being 30 seconds away from my work computer anytime I need to get something done. And if I put in long hours, it's my choice. Nobody is making me do it. But if I put in hours that are convenient for me, that, you know, it's easier for me to solve this problem at 10 o'clock at night because that's when I'm thinking about it because I'm very much just as much in my writing, in my programming. When I'm in the zone, I'm in the zone. Don't try to stop me. Just get out of my way. I'm in the zone. And so it's a lot easier to work to insane hours at night when my refrigerator full of food is 30 seconds away. Yep. When my bed if I collapse is 30 seconds away. When my cats stop by to remind me that they need to be fed. When all of this is right there comfortable. Um, and so 
we are in that fortunate set of professions where we can do this full time. And so for us, in a lot of ways, it's the better choice for people yeah. who have to actually physically contact goods and move goods and deliver goods and prepare goods. This is much more of a nightmare. But yep. but my work, the, the last time I had to touch a physical thing for my for my work, other than the computer, which doesn't really count. The last time I had to touch a physical thing is in, I think it was in December, they finally found a bug that I could not solve on the simulator. I needed an actual transmission ECU to, to solve this bug on. I had worked literally 18 months without touching a physical ECU because I was working on parts of the problem that a simulator was good enough for. But this time they finally got me one because our company makes these ECUs or actually we contract out making them and installing them into transmissions. But they're always, the problems we're solving are always on the newest models. The newest models are always in short supply because they're still being designed and implemented. And to try to tell the engineers who are putting them on trucks that, hey, you need to set 10 of these aside for the programmers to work with. It's like, ah, screw the programmers. We've got more important things going on. They can solve the programming problem later. And then they wonder why we're always the ones lagging behind. Well, it's because engineering's trying to solve their problems with their hardware. And when they're done, they can spare us their hardware. So this this is the only real physical constraint I've had to deal with is transmission hardware. And I got by without it for 18 months. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, now, what about, let's kind of go backward a little bit in terms of kind of the, the areas that I want to talk about. Um, what, what would you say your writing influences are? Or who, who, who are your writing influences? Um, that's a complicated question because it requires me to actually think about how I write, which is sort of a, a big blind spot for me. You're familiar with the centipedes dilemma? No. It, it was a poem written, I think late 19th century, um, which has become a psychological field of study actually. And I will never remember the exact rhyme, but the basic gist of the story is a centipede is walking down the road and somebody, let's say it was the frog, asks her how she keeps all those feet straight when she's walking. And she thinks about the answer and falls by the side of the road because she can't do it anymore by thinking about it. It has basically stopped her. And this is a, a well-studied psychological phenomenon now that when you reach a certain level of proficiency with a skill, thinking about doing it is more trouble than doing it. Fair enough. And that that you, you have mastered this basic thing and now it's what do I want to do with it? And so when I think about my writing influences, that makes me think about my writing style and my writing techniques and to try things that I'm sort of feeling like the centipede if I think about them too much. But I, I can tell you inspirations. I'm not sure I can tell you influences, but I can tell you inspirations. Um, two of the biggest 
and first are two that are a lot less known today um, because they were big in the 70s and we've talked about one of them, Sumtau Sukaritko. Mm -hmm. And the other was Barry Longyear. And both of them started in Asimov's in the early years of the magazine when yep. I was this close to a charter subscriber. I missed the first two issues. And reading these two with phenomenal mind-stretching stories from Sumtau with, with the Eastern influence and the philosophy and then from Barry with the very humanistic, but also humorous and, and down to earth approach, both of them were telling good stories, but suddenly it sunk through my 13 year old brain that these guys had never written anything that had been published before. That these guys, these were their first stories. Hmm. And suddenly I realized that people have first stories. And you know, when you're 13, this is a revelation. I mean, I've been seeing Asimov and Heinlein and Crichton and Ellison and who all on my shelves or the library shelves for the longest time and everything, but they were always there. Here are these two who had to begin somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that, that, well, if, if you have to begin, I can begin. And so those two were big inspirations to me to say, I want to try this. And I'm happy to be still reading their stuff today. Um, some of it I've got to catch up on because that was back in the era where if you missed it, you missed it. This all pre-Amazon, pre-internet, if you missed it, you missed it. So I just now, well, within the past three months, read Sumtow's Starship and Haiku, which I believe was his first novel or maybe his second after Mall World. I'm reading Mall World now. Mall World started as a bunch of short stories, many of which were in Asimov. So I read some of those, right? but missed others of them. So I'm catching up on his stuff, catching up on Barry's stuff and saying, wow, yes, these were the stories that had me motivated back then. So those two were big. And then I ought to mention Asimov, Heinlein, Clark, et cetera, et cetera, Zelazny, et cetera, et cetera, all of whom were obviously big influences on me. But the next big one that really made a difference to me was Jack McDevitt, who is honestly my writing inspiration and hero yet today. Mm. For one thing, although I didn't know it at the time, but one of the reasons he is today is he started late. And when it came time to actually getting serious and getting published, I started late. So the fact that Jack is a bestseller, having started late, gives me some, some encouragement. But more than that, I was at a point in my programming career where I was working like a mad fiend, late, 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 late hours and everything. See, we did the late hours then. It's just I wasn't doing it from home. So after I did the late hours, I had to drive home. Like you say, a long drive home. So... I was not, I was at a point in my life where I was working. I was enjoying my job. I was enjoying the challenges. Nothing is more satisfying than smashing the bug from hell and saying, I beat you. But it was long and it was exhausting. And I was missing something in my life and I didn't know what it was. And what it was, was I was making no time for fiction. And I 
it's not like I had zero fiction in my life, but essentially pretty close to it because I had all this busy stuff going on. And there was a bookstore near the office I was working in. And I was going through there one point and like essentially looking for old reliables, the Asimovs, the Heinleins or whatever that I, I knew. And I see this book with this picture of a guy in a some sort of a fighter helmet and a starship in the background behind him. And it's a talent for war by this guy named McDevitt. And I said, you know, blurb sounds interesting. I'm gonna buy it. And I read it. And it's not just that all of a sudden I was re-baptized re in fiction. It's, I think, one of the best books I have ever read. That could, that that I, I I won't call it hard science fiction because I think once you get into the point of interstellar travel and everything, you're past hard science fiction. You're you're into space opera, regardless of how you call it. So it's a space opera with a very hard science fiction approach to it. That when I hit the gimmick at the end, the big mystery that everybody was trying to discover, I'm like, whoa, that makes sense. I get that. <laughs> And, and suddenly I'm realizing that I missed fiction. And it wasn't long after that, as I start getting back into reading that I'm like, I miss writing it. Because my history, since those early days of Asimov's, when I first realized I could submit things was, I submit something, get a rejection, give up for years. Right. Submit something, get a rejection, give up for years. And literally, this is from age 13 to age 47. I don't, to this day, know what switch flipped in my brain that age 47. If I got a rejection, I send it to the next market. And so something had switched. But in the meantime, I all these years where I was basically giving up, giving up. And I'd given up for a very long time and suddenly reading Jack's book and then looking for more from Jack and and picking up on these, I started saying, I still want to do this. And I'd been talked out of it in terms of the economics of what the chances were and what the payoffs were and everything. It's like, look. Yeah, if you do the math, player, you wouldn't do it. If you, if you, if you just did yeah. the math, you wouldn't do it. Like it wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a good programmer. You're a successful programmer. You speak at programming conferences. You have a niche. And I'd been talked out of it. And Jack drew me back. And Jack's stories, I don't know if I can call him an influence. Again, I'm not entirely sure what that is, but a lot of his approach is very, very thoughtful. A lot of it is mystery with science fiction, which is what I tend to be known for in a lot of my books. A lot of it is history, archaeology with science fiction to the point where I think Jack has been a huge influence and in yet another way, because uh, I, I had at one point in one of his books, I had sent him some questions about the uh, astrophysics behind it. We had some discussion back and forth on that. And I doubt he even remembers that letter today, but boy, I do. <laughs> but at the point where all of a sudden I've had some successes and some stuff published in Asimov's and I get email chart, or not Asimov's, an analog, 
I get email routed to me because he contacted Analog and said, I need this guy's address. And Jack McDevitt is sending me fan mail. Like that's pretty cool. Oh, oh, this is this is a leveling up. And to the point where Jack actually asked me when he was writing one of his collections, uh, I want to say a voice in the night. He asked me to write the prologue for it. And that was like, okay, this is this is some new level of of being in the business. So think, Jack is a big influence. Yeah, I think you definitely answered the question. <laughs> uh, so what what sorts of themes do you do you write about? Um, that's a tricky one. Again, a centipede dilemma sort of thing. I'm not a hundred percent sure what theme really even is, um, but I think I have identified a common theme in a lot of my work, and I don't know if any reader sees it as a theme. But I kind of feel like a a big theme for me is identity. Um, that I have this basic principle that you own practically nothing in this life. Almost anything can be taken away from you. Everything eventually will. But one of the few things you own is identity. And I see my characters in many different stories. Part of their process in the story is becoming becoming someone that maybe they thought they were supposed to be, maybe they didn't know they were, but becoming someone that they weren't before. And so I, and it's weird because I can point to lots of my successful stories where that's not there on the surface, but then I go and think, well, is it though? Uh, my writer's the future story, unrefined basic premise for those who haven't read it which is of course lots of people nobody can keep up with the whole field but the premise is there is this dynamic leader of a space colony the industrialist who financed the whole thing put together all the deals made the thing happen and he is the the driving force for this whole city in space and early in the story he finds evidence of sabotage to their station but in the process of finding evidence gets killed and his second in command tries to rescue him barely gets out with his own life and suddenly everyone's turning to him to fill that role to, to say, look, because I'm not an economist, but I sort of understand the principles of a frontier economy that far out, that there's all sorts of pipelines that you have to keep going all the time. And if you don't mm -hmm. keep them going, somebody's going to decide that you're not going to pay your bills. So they're not going to send you food. Yeah, just, uh, just look at Hawaii and diesel fuel. Hawaii right. and diesel fuel. That, that there reaches a point where if you look like a bad credit risk, people start cutting their losses. 
And when you're out in space, you don't have a beach to sit on to, to sit there and breathe in the air and, and, and get fish out of the water and try to figure out what to do next. You have to solve the problem now. So it seems like a sabotage story, a, a problem solving story, a puzzle solving story. But in the end, it's about this guy, Sam, having to learn that he has what it takes to be the boss that that is the final piece he was missing, that he was, he was used to being the second in command, the executive officer, the guy who made things happen when somebody else gave the directive. And he is having to learn that, no, starting today, you are the one giving the directives and you'd better figure out how to do that. So it was about his identity. Uh, Today I Am Paul, the Nebula-nominated short story that became my novel, Today I Am Carrie, was all about an android whose superpower was essentially it could become people. That an Alzheimer's patient who imagined her family was visiting, the android could become them. And so it was, it, it was, again, Centipede's Dilemma. If you think about these things, can you do them? The story was done and sold and out there before I realized it was essentially the story of my mother-in-law's last year of life. That it was so much of what the pain went through was what she went through and what the android was doing. And don't tell anybody this was entirely accidental. I didn't know I was doing it. You planned it from the beginning, from the moment you sat down. I pants that story in an hour drive to work. I had an opening line and that was it. But what the Android was essentially doing in the course of that story was a perfect neutral, non-judgmental observer for every person in the family and how the grandmother's disease was affecting them. To become you, to pretend to be you in her presence It has to understand you. It has to understand what you're afraid of. It has to understand that you're exhausted because this has been going on so long. It has to understand the stresses in your life that are making you irritable. And at the same time, because she's its patient, it has to try to be as kind to her as possible, including maybe even kindness you wouldn't deliver. Because you're not constrained by health programming and, and such, but it is. So sometimes it has to choose, is it going to be faithfully you or nearly faithfully you, but, but more supportive Const- of Constrained, her? yeah, constrained you or something, right. And, and the exploration of this, and as it sees the world through each of these characters, lets you see for every one of them how the disease affects the whole family. But, but <laughs> none of these characters are being judged. They are all being sympathetically explored. And that, I think, is why that story hit for so many people, because so many of them could see themselves in one of these characters in the story. So the, the android was basically assuming identities to explore them. The book 
became largely about the Android discovering what its own identity was. And I was like, Larry Niven likes to say that science fiction is in conversation with itself, which is a very poetic way of saying, yes, every idea has been done before, but you're going to do it different, partly informed by what came before. I have read plenty of Asimov robots. I have seen all of the data episodes of Star Trek. I have seen the Bicentennial Man, the movie, which had little or nothing to do with the Bicentennial Man, the original story, which also had little or nothing to do with the novel, which I think was adapted by Silverberg. Um, and I'm not saying the novel was bad, but it was different. Every one of these was different. I did not want to retell the Android wants to be a human, the Pinocchio story. I wanted to tell something different. And so never in the book is Carrie wanting to become human. Carrie does learn that it has wants, but so much of its wants are built into this nature of it was originally designed as a medical care device. So most of what it wants is for the people in its life to not have pain where it's avoidable. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point in the book, even to say, I need purpose. And the, the youngest child has, has gotten married and moved out and the parents are doing okay. And it's like, I need purpose. It needs a job. It goes out and becomes a worker at a um, memory impairment clinic taking care of people there because that's what it was originally programmed and trained for. So it's a chance for it to go out in the process. It is creating this new identity that before it was assigned this job. Now it is choosing this job. It is becoming an important part of this facility. The whole book is Carrie's identity evolving and the family story around that. So I think, I think identity is behind a lot of my stories if you dig deeply enough. There's a, a scene in Superman, Last Son of Krypton, which is one of my favorite books and a very early influence um, where something has gone wrong in the broadcast and Clark Kent, when they finally get back fixed, looks straight at the TV audience and says, you know, when these sort of things happen, we always say, we're sorry for technical difficulties. When what we really mean is somebody screwed up and we really are sorry, but we're calling it technical difficulties because we're trying to pretend it's nobody's fault. Well, we screwed up. Now, in this case, it really was technical difficulties. But yeah, a little bit, a little bit. But, you but know. It just means technology isn't perfect. Yeah, I know. I Anyway, um... The next question I was going to have is for, for folks who are brand new to you, number one, what, you know, what sorts of stories, you know, do you write, um, you know, for the most part? And then number two, where can they start? What, what books and works should they check out? Well, like all of us, I have a lot of variety. A lot of things appeal to me. The story tells me what it's going to be. But my big preference is a term I've been trying to get the whole industry to use, and they never will. They've all got their own ideas for the term. Um, but I call it neo-Apollo. 
stories that are like the Apollo age, but the next generation on the frontier. Mm-hmm. With all of the, gee, can we do this? What are the challenges? Uh, what are the risks? Sometimes people are going to die. All of that spirit into the next generation. I call my, my primary universe blue collar space. The model being the future doesn't just happen. Somebody has to build it. Yep. And those are the stories that really made me want to write. Um, going back to influences, there is a story by PJ Plogger, who, if you're in my field, you say, story. No, no, Plogger writes C programming books. Well, yes. He wrote a lot of C programming books. He's a long, successful career as a programmer and teacher and philosopher of programming. And way back in the 1970s, he wrote science fiction for analog. (laughs) And there was a book called The Analog Annual, which was Analog's attempt to do a book-sized anthology once a year. They published one of them. But, (laughs) But in there is a story by Plogger called Fighting Madness. And I swear, every time I write a story today, I am writing Fighting Madness at some level. Because it was in the sort of echoes of the Apollo era. It was nuts and bolts, hard science fiction stories with real characters involved in real complicated conflicts, which partly got solved because of the science. And, and to this day, it's one of my favorite stories ever. And I think it came out in 1974. Um, but it was essentially a scientist who has had a mental breakdown in a previous story, a self-induced mental breakdown, because he knew secrets that would potentially enable the next generation of war. And he burned out his own brain so that no government could get a hold of these secrets, which means now he's only a genius. He's not the smartest person on the planet. He's only a genius with a bad reputation because he burned his own government as well as the others. And he ends up having trouble finding work and gets involved in a satellite construction project where they're shipping up workers to go work up on this classical ring type satellite and i mean he he can't do the really advanced math but he's still brilliant technician he's smart he's fit he's able he can go build a and while he's building a satellite he finds all sorts of conspiracies going on that he and he alone can stop but it was the he's going up there he's building things he's helping to put together this satellite out of pieces shipped up on rockets that gripped me. This was the Apollo philosophy taken to the next level of we're going out there and building things, which sadly, of course, we haven't done nearly as much of as was imagined in the 70s, but we're getting there. So that sort of neo-Apollo is what I like to write. My blue, blue collar space collection is a collection of stories of people living and working and dying and loving and laughing on that frontier frontier way out there this is the frontier over our heads or on the planet next door and so on my two novels so far 
are set in the blue collar space universe. Uh, the Last Dance and The Last Campaign were written basically up until then, my blue collar space stuff had pretty much all been on the moon. Obvious place to go to, to start expanding humanity. Right. Except I had one on uh, on Mars, and that was my first analog sale. Um, not not close enough. And so that one established the Mars missions as part of my universe. And then I sat down to write another story, and it's like, what is this going to be? What is this going to be? And this is this is where my relationship with Bain started. I was entering the Bain Memorial short story contest, which deadline is end of the month if you still haven't finished your story for it yet. Uh, but Bain Memorial is literally for Neo-Apollo stories. They don't call it that. Nobody calls it that. Everybody, please start calling it Neo-Apollo stories so that I'll feel like I created a term. Um, but essentially, they want near future, near space, hard science fiction with an optimistic approach without any magic, science, aliens, blah, 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 blah. They want stories that are in that sort of Apollo vein of exploration and construction and settlement and so on for a very specific reason. The people who put us on the moon had massive science fiction collections in almost all of their homes and many of their offices. They were inspired by those stories to go to the moon. Well, that's Maybe. what the Chinese are doing right now. They're like massively funding. Isn't it the Future Foundation or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's not, it's not just innocent. Yeah. They saw, they, they, they smartly saw what led to the Apollo program and, and what inspired it. And they, you know, the precursors of it were the Heinleins and you yeah. know, everything that was in Asimov's and everything that went with it. Um, and they see that and there's, you know, it's basically more of a government government funding funded program on their end. Yeah. Whereas here we have to roll our own, which is what what the Bain Memorial is about is essentially stories to inspire the next generation of engineers and explorers to get us off this rock. My kind of stories. And I went and submitted a story that I really liked and I took second place. Yay. Don't yay. Yeah. Second place is pretty impressive in that contest. Yeah. But it, it felt like, yay, I did something good. And I get a bunch of books and I get recognition and I'm I'm happy. But boy, I would have been great to win. And then I get the email saying that Rich Johnson cannot make the flight to the International Space Development Conference to pick up his first place trophy because he is coming from New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia. I think he's New Zealand. It's been so long. Oh, I for some reason, I thought he was South Africa, but no, no, he he's he's I, I get him confused with one other writer over there, but I think he's New Zealand. And it's like the contest is happy to give him membership to the conference and let him give a speech, but they ain't paying for his travel and he ain't paying for his travel. So he asks contest coordinator Bill Ledbetter, can Martin appear and read my speech? And Bill says, Martin, would you like to appear at the yes? <laughs> and like, yes, thank you, Rich. I owe you a beer. And so I go and I'm attending this. This is where luncheon. you met Buzz Aldrin, right? This is where I met Buzz Aldrin. I'm attending this luncheon to read Bill's speech. And I'm ending up at the table with Buzz Aldrin 
to give Rich's speech. And besides Buzz Aldrin, I'm meeting Ben Bova and I'm meeting people in the industry and I'm meeting Tony, uh, Tony Daniel, who eventually became my editor for Today I Am Carrie. So it's like all this, but I met Buzz Aldrin and I went to Buzz's talk and he's talking about this plan he has for a Mars cycler mission, an orbital mechanics maneuver that essentially gives you sort of he called it an express train to Mars, not express because it's fast. Somehow today we think express means fast. It's like, no, express means nonstop. The express train is the train that crosses town with no stops in between. Mm -hmm. The cycler concept is elaborate orbital mechanics carefully planned such that when you leave Earth, you are leaving on an orbit that is going to exactly pass by Mars in Mars's orbit swing out and come back around just to catch Earth in Earth's orbit. And it's, it's easy to just intersect the orbit, but you want to intercept it when the planet is passing where you're intercepting it. Right. And just keep this up on a 26-month cycle over and over and over again. The challenge is you basically are launching intercept shuttles to catch the cycler or to drop off the cycler because it's got to keep going. And he's explaining all of this. And I can literally tell you my notes from his talk. Because I was taking notes from all these talks because these were great, great talks, inspirational. Mm -hmm. Something aboard a Mars cycler. That was my entire note, Buzz's talk. Because I was so blown away by the concept. And a few months later, I'm in the shower. It's like, Okay, it's time to write something aboard a Mars cycler. And all of a sudden, this story, Murder on the Auburn Express, starts coming together. And it was something aboard a Mars cycler. And, and I was writing it for Analog because I'd already sold them one story. Mm -hmm. And eventually, I sold them this one. In the meantime, my first reader, Tina Smith, other readers too, this was the one Jack loved. This is the one that became a year's best science fiction with Gardner. But Tina was the one who said, you're not done with these characters. You're going to write more stories. And I'm like, well, I might have some ideas. No, you're going to write more of these characters. And so I wrote another story and I prepared to write a third. And all of a sudden, my whole novel fell into place. That's The Last Dance, um, which is the, uh, it's a, came out from 47 North. And it literally was the number one science fiction ebook on am paid science fiction ebook on Amazon for the entire month of October 2019. So if they really want to see me doing what I'm best known for, that's going to be the book. And then the sequel to that is the last campaign. And then of and course you have um you know uh I, you know today I am Carrie. Yep. So Very different one. Yeah. That's your um, third third book. Well, no, I don't that, know what that the was the first was. published. Right. Second written. Uh, because I was having trouble finding a publisher for the first one. And in the meantime, Today I Am Paul, the short story, got the Nebula nomination and got the Washington Small Press Association Award, was in four different years' best collections. And so it kind of had visibility. So it was a little easier to sell a book based on that. Yeah, that's great. It, and, and, oh, I'm very proud of it. 
it was not what I expected to be known for. I expected to be known for the blue collar space stuff Mm -hmm. and Carrie proved to be the easier story to sell first. Yeah. You can't really, uh, you know, plan those things. Are there any Mm -hmm. other, um, you know, aside from the series of novels you talked about at the very beginning of the call, the, whatever the, the eight novels and then ninth final novel. What else are you working on? Any other hard science fiction books? Um, I have got at least three sort of in the back burner that I'm trying to find the story in them. I sort of know the grand sweep, but I don't have the story. Um, one of them you're very familiar with because readers are going to see a chunk of it in March. Uh, a line in the stars, which is my contribution to the weird world war four. We talked about early on that that was a novel sized idea. And you told me to squeeze it into 5,000 words. And I cursed your name to the darkness and I pulled it off, but there's a novel's worth of backstory that I very cleverly compressed into flashbacks and, and remarks and so on. But I think if you read that carefully, there's a whole novel there. Well, get to it. Get started on that one. Um, I, and then also to mention, you also contributed the Ouroboros arrangement in Weird World War III. For folks who don't know who I am or who Martin is, I, I edited uh, two anthologies for Bane. The first was Weird World War III. The second is Weird World War IV. I won't go into it. Uh, you can check it out um, on Amazon yeah. or wherever any books are sold. But Martin contributed to both. Um, and the Ouroboros arrangement is the one in the first anthology. Go ahead. Sorry. And, and that one has novel potential too. We've, we've talked about that too. And that is going to be one incredibly hard novel to write. Uh, if I pull it off, it will be remembered because spoiler alert for people who, who haven't read the original story yet, but without a lot of spoilers, but essentially it's about a guy who discovers and keeps rediscovering that something out there has the power to rewrite history, specifically to rewrite it so that it itself cannot be discovered, but must come to exist. And so this guy's memories, the whole world keeps getting rewritten because because he is finding himself unintentionally nudging around the edges of this secret eventually it should reach a point where the rewrites are not perfect enough and he starts seeing clues that can't be rewritten and has to be heading towards this future conflict that he can never see because if he gets too close to see it too perfectly it gets rewritten and and so i see what could be a really awesome story approach because the reader gets the God perspective. The reader seeing what's happening. The reader sees every iteration. I cannot reach out and rewrite the reader's memory. So the reader will know things that the character is only glimpsing, but I want to write it in a way that those glimpses get more and more concrete until he gets close enough to have to start deciding what he's going to do about this thing that 
if he approaches it wrong, he gets rewritten. All right, with that, Martin, I think we're we went for two hours. I told you, getting me to talk is easy. It's getting me to shut up that's the hard part. Oh no, I I can I can I can do that. But uh, okay, before 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 we end, uh, I think the last thing I want to leave readers with is if they want to find you, um, you know, where's your website, Twitter, Facebook, etc. Uh, where the, where can they find you? Uh, website is shoemaker.space. Simple, simple, just dot space, not dot space.com or anything like that. Just dot space. Um, a mistake I made, which I do it again just because I'm cantankerous, but it was a mistake. When the dot space domains were, were first announced that they were coming, I said, what could be better for a hard science fiction writer than to have your name dot space as a domain? The problem is we've had nearly 20 years now of people being trained that all URLs end in .com. There's even software that's trained that way. Oh, there's way too much software. I'm, I'm a programmer. You know how you tell if an email is valid? You say, operating system, tell me is this email valid? The operating system libraries get updated every quarter or six months to a year. So if the rules change, the operating system changes. But no, people are writing their own email validators and they think that dot .space is not valid. And dot .space has been valid since I believe 2016. Mm. I will tell people shoemaker.space and they will add .com at the end. Where space.com is a really wonderful science space journalism site with lots of great articles and they have no clue who I am. So when you try to go to shoemaker.space.com, you get a not a 404 error page not found. So shoemaker.space, I'm easy to find there. Um, and Martin L. Shoemaker, this is the Barry Longyear influence. I, I've broken the habit now, but Early in his writing career, it was always Barry B. Longyear. Barry B. Longyear, not just Barry Longyear, Barry B. Longyear. And it was always Arthur C. Clark and Robert A. Heinlein. And by golly, if I was going to have a writing career, I was going to use my middle initial. Uh, and now Barry doesn't try because he's discovered something that I took me a long time to discover, which is they forget. People forget. And I can't hold it against them. I don't think of you as Sean Q. Hazlitt. You're just Sean. Yeah. I don't even know what the initial is. Well, that's the point. Who's going to remember my middle initial? But that's my brand now. And, and that's how I've appeared in analog, appeared in all the main anthologies and so on, except for the one time analog put my name on the cover and forgot the initial. They put it in the table of contents, but not on the cover. But, you know... If analog space, yeah, yeah. If, if is going to put you on the cover, you're not supposed to complain. Yeah, especially because it was my second time on the cover, the second story I told sold them, or maybe it was the third and third. But basically, I was name on the cover every time I appeared in analog for a while. If they got it wrong once, I'm not going to complain. But on Facebook, if you don't have the L. Martin L. Shoemaker, you're not going to find me. You're going to find one of the other poor Martin Shoemakers who's wondering who this guy is, who's polluting the namespace because every time somebody searches, they end up with me instead of him. All right, my friend. 
uh, it's good talking to you. And uh, there'll be many, many such, um, you know, discussions in the future. Thank Sounds you cool. for thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you.